the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. This is the Pro-America Report on The Answer, San Diego. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Ed Martin here on the Pro-America Report. Lots to talk about, lots to talk about today. Looking forward to it. Thank you for joining me. Um, It's a great time to be pro-America. It's a great time to be pro-America. The, the, the basics are so good. I, I was doing a radio interview earlier today on a, a Champaign-Urbana uh, radio station, the ESPN station there. Stevie J is the host. It's a phenomenal segment. Every Wednesday at 8.30 my time, East Coast time, so 7.35, 7.35 local time in the a.m. morning on this ESPN station, me, Stevie J, and his older brother, Johnny, who played football and basketball at Illinois, I don't know, 40 years ago, uh, talk for about 20 minutes. It's fantastic. And I always finish think, being hopeful, even though I have all these things to say about how crazy things are, about how dishonorable, distrustful, insane the swamp is, how uh, disreputable the media is, the fake news, everything. But it's always good. So I always finish upbeat. And today's uh, program will be the same thing. I mean, I, I'm going to talk in a few moments to uh, my friend, Dr. Thomas Williams. He's the Rome Bureau Chief at Breitbart. He also is the author of a new book. I think it's called The Coming Persecution. Let me see if I'm doing that right. It's The Coming Persecution. I think I'm getting the title right. And basically, he's saying, look, the culture has shifted so much. Yeah, The Coming Persecution, uh, why things are getting worse and what you can do about it. And uh, Sophia Institute Press. And uh, But he finishes. He, he never gets dour. He never gets down. He's just describing, hey, this is what's going on. This is how it's going. Uh, this is the direction. Here's what's coming. And then what are you going to do about it? How are you going to change the direction? What are you going to do to change the, you know, your outcomes around you? Uh, very good. Anyway, interesting. And, uh, so I, I finished and then John Schlafly and John Schlafly always makes me smile. He, he could have the hardest, harshest, toughest message in his, uh, in, in his column, weekly column. And he just always makes me smile. So it'll be good. It'll be a good show. I won't get down too much, but first, first, let me tell you what you need to know. Today's wink. And, and let me send you over to ProAmericaReport.com, ProAmericaReport.com, where you can sign up for the Daily Wink. The Daily What You Need to Know, the Wink email comes out, 8 a.m. East Coast, 5 a.m. Pacific. You kind of tune in there. You get some links. You get some stories, some insight. And I'll send you my wink for the day also. So today's What You Need to Know comes to you. I know you like this. comes to you from Politico. Politico, the otherwise left of center. But what I say to people is, Intellectually left, uh, intellectual, comma, left of center, comma, and partisan. But they are kind of intellectual. They're pretty good writers. They're pretty savvy. They see what's going on and they write pretty well. So there's a piece over in Politico and the title of it is Trump ties GOP in knots over Medicare and Social Security. Now, the author, Burgess Everett, Burgess Everett's been around a while. The other author, Caitlin Emma, I don't know her name as well, but they write a long think piece, long think piece. They got kind of news, but it's basically talking about how Donald Trump is driving a wedge through the GOP over one of America's thorniest issues, the future of Medicare and Social Security. Now, 
They're kind of right in writing this story, but the wedge was driven through the GOP about five and a half years ago, six years ago, when the first time a candidate, a modern Republican candidate, ran for office at the national level and said unequivocally, I'll never touch your Social Security. I'll never touch your Medicare. We made a deal with you on that. We can't go back on it. Everybody else, everybody, Paul Ryan as vice president to Mitt Romney, uh, even, um, you know, uh, McCain, of course, and even W. Bush in his second term, they all talk about how they're going to solve the problem of Social Security and Medicare. And here's the thing. I'll be the first to acknowledge and join Senator Chuck Grassley in his analysis of the cost. It's out of control. But to say that you're going to cut Medicare and Social Security because it's out of control, the spending is dumb. It's dumb politics. It's not fair. And by the way, it's dumb politics. So it's not fair, meaning people pay in and they and they have they live with a commitment they're going to get something and then they and then they're going to be talked to it's going to talk about cutting it. And then politics, you can't do it. You cannot do it. You cannot win by alienating a large percentage, a large part of the largest group of people that vote for you or vote in elections. Seniors, 55 and older. Once you get to be about 55, I'm not quite there, you're already starting to think about Social Security. You're already starting to think about what it means. So you you just can't do it. And Trump, five and a half years ago, did this. He said, I'm not going to run. I'm going to tell you. I'll protect. So now Trump is saying, as a new candidate for president, people want to run against him in a primary. He's saying, let me explain to you. He's saying, these people have voted for and talked about cutting Medicare and Social Security. They have. They have. And you know who's laughing as you see this story written? Politico's writing this piece. Who's laughing is the Democrats because the Democrats long ago realized there was no upside in being a serious policy person and deciding what the problems were with Social Security and Medicare. No upside. Just keep saying we'll never cut it. In fact, we'll expand it. That's what the Democrats do. They don't have any idea how to pay for it all. They don't have any idea how it's going to work out. But they're smart enough to know that politically it's a cudgel. And the only ones dumb enough to not realize it are certain Republicans. But it's not everybody anymore. It used to be everybody. It used to be most of the people running on the Republican side would get trapped in this argument about who possibly could be maybe think through the best way to possibly save Social Security. We'll do this. We'll make these cuts, mean testing. And it never worked. It never worked, but it used to be almost everybody was there and it was, it was, and the Republicans were trapped. Now you read this piece from Politico. Guess who gets quoted halfway through? Trump, of course, but right after that, Hawley. Right after that, some of these folks that are in the uh, Senate Vance, JD Vance, doesn't think you should do it. The people that are saying, oh, no big deal. You know, you just figured out how to make these cuts and then, and you, you know, you'll fight your way over the top of it. Those are John Cornyn in the Senate. Mike Pence's people are saying, you know, uh, you know, that, that there should be cuts. I mean, it's just crazy. So again, Trump has figured out a way to have the Democrats and the Democratic media do their, do their heavy lifting for him because they're basically making this contrast. And Trump is going to be on the side from the very beginning of not cutting, not changing Medicare and, uh, and, and Social Security. Now, within the same article, you know how there's links within an article to other articles? There is a link to just how big is the always Trump component of the Republican Party. I referenced this the other day. The fact is that there's a bunch of people that see in this guy, Trump, someone who 
steps up and argues things for the American people that no one else will do. Naming China as truly a threat, talking about how we have to have tariffs no matter what the economists in the ivory towers say, we can't live like this. Stepping up and saying we're going to appoint pro-life judges. He didn't shy away from it. Trump did not say, oh, I will have no litmus test on my judges. He said, I'm going to appoint pro-life judges. He did. And Roe v. Wade was reversed. Everybody else is, oh, well, I won't have a litmus test and I might deliver suitor to you. That's what happened. That's George W. H.W. Bush. So there's a whole bunch of voters and, and, and Politico and others are getting used to this. They're getting used to this now they're, and they're, and they're starting to talk about it more. There's a bunch of voters and I've heard this from experienced, savvy political guys and gals. They say there's a whole bunch of voters that will never vote for a Republican except for Trump this time. In the future, they may vote Republican because they might be Trump Republicans. But if Trump's running and he gets beaten back or the media, you know, there's now all this coverage of Paul Ryan talking to the executives at Fox about how we have to hammer down on Trump. And that this is, you know, Paul Ryan's on the board of Fox. By the way, when you say he's on the board of Fox, people think, oh, wow, he's on the board of Fox. There's, you know, 42 members of the board. No, it's five. I think three are Murdoch family, maybe one other and Paul Ryan. It's not exactly uh, like a large board. In other words, when you hear that one of the board members in this case is saying to executives, Hey, let's, um, let's do this. Let's do that. That's not, it's not like, um, like at one point when the NRA was having trouble and they're still being sued all over the place, they, they, I think there was 45 board members. Well, that's different. Anyway, back to my point. Whatever the number is that you think, if, if it's more than 10%, it's game over. What I mean by that is if 10% of the Republican primary will only vote for Trump and Trump runs as he's doing and runs hard, it's game over. He has to be the nominee. And if you're John, uh, Ron DeSantis, you say to yourself, well, I could win this primary. I can get the money. I can see a path, but it's a Pyrrhic victory because I can't win. It, whoever the Republican is that wins in 2024, it will be close. And you certainly can't start out with 10% of the Republicans not voting for you. So one of the realities, and this, by the way, this is, this is also a, a part of, uh, uh, you know, kind of politics, um, uh, you know, and, and tactics, because Trump wants this story. Because if you're Ron DeSantis, you're saying to yourself, I'm 47 years old. I got a long career ahead of me. Do I really want to end it by losing to Joe Biden? Or losing to Kamala Harris. Because if 10% of the Republican voters stay home, and you could say, well, no, no, it's not true. No, here's the thing. There, there are always Trump voters. I'm not one of them. If the Republican, if they, if a, if it comes down to a Republican who's more conservative than the Democrat, I can't imagine a Democrat that's conservative these days. That could be, could surprise me, but I, I doubt it. Therefore, I'm not going to say, oh, I'll never vote for a Republican I don't like. I'll hold my nose and vote for somebody who I don't think is the absolute best if he's because you have to choose. You know, the perfect's not on the ballot. But that's not everybody. And the more people that are vocally that way, the more likely it is that a guy like Ron DeSantis says, uh, not now. I'll step back. Uh, I, I won't uh, bother uh, doing this now. So that's what you need to know. That's what you need to know. It's a big deal. And uh, and they're just discovering this over at Politico. They're figuring out the uh, reality that, A, Trump knows how this, how this works, politics at this level, and especially Republican primary politics. 
Oh, let me finish. I don't know if I started this off. I was telling someone earlier, Governor Scott Walker, I sat next to him at an event a few weeks ago. Did I just tell this story? And and he uh, he's, he's very savvy. He, he had three hard fought elections in Wisconsin to be the unions tried to destroy him and he won a recall and elections. And he didn't win for president. He flamed out pretty quickly, raised a lot of money. But but uh, he was recently quoted. He said, look, when Joe Bi- uh, when when Joe Biden failed to go to Ohio and Donald Trump flew in there. And you see the people that see he's on their side. He's got water and he's there. Walker, who I don't think is a big Trump fan, said, you get a couple more moments like that, that guy's going to be president again. And he should be. That's what's happening. Trump knows how to seize the moment. And that's what's happening around him. All right, we got to take a break. We'll come back and talk with John Schlafly and Dr. Thomas Williams. Be right back. Ed Martin here on the Pro-America Report. Back in a moment. Welcome back. Welcome back. Ed Martin here on the Pro-America Report. Time to check in with John Schlafly. John Schlafly writes a weekly column with his brother, Andy. It's called the Schlafly Report, interestingly enough, over at townhall.com. This week's column, globalists want their own president. Globalists want their own president. Welcome back, John. But I th- I think they have their own president, don't they? I mean, is there yeah. any doubt that that uh, Pre- President Biden is a globalist? There's no, there's no doubt, Ed, uh, you know, that... Biden has been doing their bidding. There's no question about that. Although, okay. you know, he didn't come from their world. Yeah, he's been, been, I would say, bent over backwards to do their bidding. But, you know, in, as time goes on, there's increasing discontent, I would say, uh, at, uh, about whether Biden can really go the distance for Pete's sake. And, um, you know, and going the distance means, uh, you know, another six years from now. And uh, the poll, the, the the poll that was released just recently, the thirty-seven that only thirty percent, seven percent of Democrats want Biden to run for another term. Well, that has ripple effect. And uh, an article that came out today made the case in the Atlantic magazine about why by why you know uh, other candidates, Democratic candidates should challenge Biden in twenty twenty four for the nomination. But and, uh, but 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 let but let's get hold on pause one second. Let's get real here. Um first of all, if you could go back in time, do you think that the numbers, if you could go back uh let's say eighteen months before the election in twenty the twenty twenty election. So let's go in like late in um uh well let's just say uh, uh late in February, early March of twenty eighteen was that no twenty nineteen and you did a poll, I'm not sure more than 37% would have said Biden, but the Democrats, as long as they can get the field to just Biden, their people won't go anywhere. This is a, this yeah. is a d- different conundrum that you're, you've addressed, you and I have addressed off yeah. the air, but but let me let me finish that. There, there's some number of people that are never, that are always Trumpers, that if you, if you take out Trump, you, they'll never vote for the Republican. There's some percentage, if it's 2%, maybe, but I think it's more like 20% of the Republican primary. So my thought is here is that, okay, yeah, if they could get an open field, but show me who's going to step up and take on Joe Biden. Cause it's not Joe Biden. It's Susan Rice. It's Lisa Monaco. It's, uh, it's the Obama people that are running things in the White House, including a Podesta's back. Well, all that all that is true, and uh, we we are, you know, a, a year out from the, uh, the nominee of both parties to really come together. So there's plenty of room, 
plenty. There's lots that can happen between now and then. There's no question about that. But the effects of age are inexorable. And as time goes on, Biden is slipping. And, you know, vision, uh, people will want that job. And some people will emerge to take that away from him. And uh, I guess the real point of our column, Ed, is that the the progressive globalists, the progressives and the globalists, I'm not sure there's 100% overlap between the progressives and the globalists, but the globalists are really driving, they are the people who want their way, no matter who's president. It was Donald Trump who, for once, in the first candidate of either party who was willing to say no to the globalists, and they will do anything uh, to prevent you know, Trump from regaining that office. And that just proves, as you say, that the Trump supporters will say there really is no substitute for Trump. He is the only candidate who is willing and able to, um, uh, to, to, Stand up now, John. Uh, we're talking with John Schlafly again. His column is over on uh, Phil, uh, phyllisschlafly.com archive there. Uh, has the uh, requisite reference to the classic 1964 uh, Phyllis Schlafly bestseller, A Choice, Not an Echo. Um, but, John, uh, who's the best candidate for the globalists? Is it uh, Buttigieg? I, I mean, I hate to say it, but does it matter for the Democrats? There's not someone who's going to buck the trend. I guess that's your point. There's not well, anyone that's going to buck the trend. Pretty much, although Buttigieg, you know, he has, he was, he was groomed in the kind of the same way that Bill Clinton was groomed. You know, you start with uh, an early association with John F. Kennedy as a teenager. That's, right. that's what the right. two men shared. Right. And then they were both Rhodes Scholars. I mean, you know, that's a one-two punch. You really can't get past that. I mean, those two were groomed. And then, of course, uh, Buttigieg and the McKinsey and company. Uh, Now, of course, he's lost a bit of a luster, a bit of his luster, whatever luster he had as a result of East Palestine, Ohio. But, you know, the the forces behind him will cover that up somehow. So, um, I, I saw I saw Governor Scott Walker, somebody who knows something about uh, candidates who uh, seem to be favorites to win for president and don't go very far, which is, you know, in 2016, he he mounted a hundred and fifty million dollar campaign and had all the things done and all the key people. And, and he washed out by, I think, Thanksgiving. Uh, but he said, have a few more events, a few more uh, political moments like Ohio, where Trump goes down there and, and shows up. And he said Trump wins the White House. I mean, he wins the nomination in the White House. Um, I, I don't think that I don't think that's far off. In fact, I think it's um, the opposite. I don't think he needs many more. I think it's sort of a, a baked in. What's your best sense, though, on the Republican side? Would you go so far as to say that, um, well, all of the declared candidates, it's only Nikki Haley and uh, and Trump right now are Nikki Haley's sort of a globalist leaning. Right. I mean, is that where you'd go with that? Well, Haley, Pompeo, Pence, I mean, you know, the, and, and of course, DeSantis, those are the four names, and maybe there's another, uh, Haley, I mean, and people are talking about it, and the media is obsessed with the idea of coming up with somebody who is willing and able to ch- challenge Trump. I really don't see it. Um, it. It's really, it's media. It's media hype, and, you know, even the Fox News Channel has been obsessed with boosting anybody who might present a challenge to Trump and giving them airtime. So, I mean, but, but 
as you say, Ed, you know, it's there's a immovable core of people, I think, and uh, it's not going to work. Yeah, so, it is. Uh, it, the interesting, the question becomes um, whether. You know, we've seen this before, to be honest. We saw this in 15 and 16. And then the the uh, the, the difference might be that everybody takes Trump seriously now. They realize he can he can and and uh, and, you know, um, has won. Uh, but back back, John, to this uh, to the column um, again, John Schlafly's column over at Phyllis dot com. Globalists want their own president um, is uh, is the on on the question of the America first agenda. H- have we lost Almost all of what Trump was able to do. Uh, well, of course, the you know the idea of naming uh, China. Uh, that's is, true. That's, that's better. And, and here we have the Republican Congress uh, starting with a series of hearings, and we'll see how far that goes. Um, problem is so big, though, uh, that I'd, uh, one set of hearings is not going to make a difference, but. Uh, Certainly want to encourage that, but there's the problem is so has come so gigantic over the 30 years. The, the situation we face with China began to be built 30, 30 years ago. Now, some would say 50 years ago when Nixon and Kissinger went to China, but really, it really began in the 90s when George H. W. Bush was ambassador to China, and. Um, that I would say that sparked the idea among the elite Americans that we can make money by offloading manufacturing to China, and that's and because it'll just be low skill stuff. Well, now it's high skill stuff, just as mm-hmm. anyone could have predicted. Right. And China is now dominating the world. They got the best the Belt and Road Initiative, where they effectively are colonizing. Africa and Latin America, and there are, you know, producing all of the uh, raw materials and even the parts that are needed for the so-called green economy that Biden is forcing everyone to buy and subsidizing. So, um, you know, the China issue we see, and and, uh, and now forming an alliance with uh, Russia, and basically in order to supply Russia with the uh, with what they, Russia has been prohibited from getting from Western countries. So that's where we are now. It's a new geopolitical situation that we face. I think China, uh, Donald Trump, as usual, is right on the money, and Biden doesn't know what he's doing, and he's got John, America when, when that t- John, when, when, when can we count on the um, the uh, uh, reapplication and uh, invigoration of the Monroe Doctrine by? Uh, John and Andy Schlafly in print. I mean, I really feel like this point we need this. Uh, we need the the continuing validity of the Monroe Doctrine is is established for you and me, but we need the reinvigoration of it. When 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 is that coming? Is that coming soon? The two hundredth anniversary of the Monroe Doctrine is this year, Ed. And uh, that's why I'm uh, counting we'll on it. <laughs> you got to mark it. Well, we'll, we'll, we'll yes, we will celebrate that. Now, mind you, the Monroe Doctrine was focused on our hemisphere, the Western Hemisphere, and uh, and basically, it said that European powers will that the United States cannot allow European powers to colonize or control or dominate any part of the Western Hemisphere. Now, 
you know, the situation with China is a bit different from that. First of all, it's not a European power, so it doesn't technically fall in there. And but and and uh, but the you know the wider principle is that uh, the United States, from our base here in North America, has to have freedom of movement in this world. And uh, but increasingly, we become our dominance has been challenged and blocked by the emerging power from China, and that we've got to figure out how to counter that. Well, and and uh, and I, well, I agree with you. I also think that the um, post World War II articulation of the Monroe Doctrine as to the problem of of communism is also unique. In other words, uh, it, it, you know, Monroe Doctrine refers, as I've said to my listeners many times, to systems. It doesn't refer to actually nations or peoples or something. It's the systems. Are, your systems aren't compatible with being in our hemisphere. And I think the communist Chinese, especially vis-a-vis TikTok and uh, other things, um, uh, uh, fit into that. All right, John, we got to run. John Schlafly, everybody. His column is over at townhall.com. Originally, and then, uh, uh, excuse me, archived at phyllisschlafly.com. We'll take a break and be right back. Ed Martin here on the Pro-America Report. Back in a moment. Welcome back. Welcome back. Ed Martin here on the Pro-America Report. Uh, we've had uh, Thomas Williams, Dr. Thomas Williams, on the program a number of times in the past. He is uh, uh, has uh, been a writer and a contributor at Breitbart. Uh, over the years, it's one of the places where I've seen him break stories. He's also a visiting research fellow, was a visiting research fellow uh, at Notre Dame. Um, he's uh, written, uh, I think, about almost 20 books, as far I think I remember. And he uh, teaches theology in Rome. And you see him a lot uh, commentating on uh, most of the American media will go and ask him to try to understand what Catholic uh, thought is, what Catholic teaching is, and how it fits together. He's got a great presence. So welcome back, uh, Dr. Thomas Williams. How are you, sir? Ed, it is such a pleasure. You and I have been friends for decades yeah, now. Yeah, it's, it's embarrassing. It's embarrassing. I don't like to admit it. I think I was a kid and you were a big timer and I was just a kid when I was in Rome once. Years ago, I think, the, I think remind me if I get it wrong, the Synod of Bishops for America in 97, I was there that as was a, it. yeah, Peritus. You were there, I think, translating and doing all kinds of things, but uh, that might have been the first time. But anyway, but um, but listen, congratulations on the new book. And um, I, I am... I'm telling you, it came together for me. I got your book sent to me, which I love. By the way, I love to get books sent to me. I'm reading it, and I know you, of course. But there's a book by a Protestant professor um, named Vadi Balcom. I don't know if you've seen this yet, called Fault Lines. And in the I book, it's it's out by um, uh, Regnery, just like you're uh, – uh, no, you, sorry, you're Sophia Institute. Sophia Institute. Regnery did this book by Vadi Balcom. It's called Fault Lines, and it's about how the evangel- ev- evangelical church is heading towards a crisis on all the woke stuff. And as I'm reading your book, and I'm thinking you're describing, just like he does, that – we're not going to escape this. We're 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 heading towards this. It's going to be a challenge, I guess. Uh, Dr. Thomas Williams again is n- new book, "The Coming Christian Persecution." So Sophia Institute Press. How do you feel good about that? I mean, you're describing that something bad is coming. How do you <laughs> how do you get out of bed in the morning? Well, yeah, it's it's not a cheerful book. I mean, it's <laughs> it's not meant to it's not meant to depress people either. Though I think as Christians, uh, hope is kind of our our bloodline. It's something that keeps us alive. It keeps us going. It keeps us pushing forward. And really, if anything, the book is meant to wake people up, but also to, you know, get them mobilized, get them them excited also about this battle that's coming and that we're already in the midst of. 
and and really ready to do something. So I think it's it's more a call to action than it is a call to lie down and die. I mean, it's 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 not about you know just letting them roll over you. It's more about you know what's happening, why is it happening, what are the signs we can see around us, and what can we do to stand up to this. Um, we're talking again with uh, Dr. Thomas Williams about his book, The Coming a Christian Persecution, comes out the day after St. Joseph's uh, feast day. So it comes out on the 20th of March. Uh, I do that because my birthday is the 19th of March. But uh, and uh, so the coming Christian persecution. All right. In the book, I got I, I like to I tell my listeners, I read the I read the first chapter, the last chapter, and then I go bouncing back through. So I, I think the second or third to the last chapter. You write, persecution is a constant reminder that Christians are in exile and that our home is not in this world. It urges us to look elsewhere to place our aspirations in eternity. And that goes, and then in times, that's what? In times of prosperity, when everything's going well, it's tempting for us to come complacent, to allow ourselves to be attached. In times of trial, our gaze turns upward. Now, what I want to say is for a lot of believers in, in America, it feels more and more um, at least isolated, if not bleak. And so it does feel like sometimes it's find your own team, build a wall around your city and and just, you know, get to the the get to the, uh, you know, to the finish line. I know you don't mean that because I see that in the book about, you know, get ready for this and all. But that feeling is almost becoming overwhelming. Yeah, I I know I am so opposed to that. Ed. Uh, the fortress mentality where we just. <laughs> hunker down and, you know, get our, our, our cans of soup and, and lie down on our beds and wait for it to pass. That's not who we are. Uh, Christians are evangelizers. They're missionaries by vocation. Every single Christian, you're, you're sent out to the world to make disciples of all the nations. This is not, you know, hunker down and, and you know, wait for the, the onslaught to pass. That's not who we are. So, no, if I, I hope I don't give that message anywhere in the book because I certainly don't mean no. to. It's more a question of, you take solace in the fact that if you you lose the battle today, you know, in the end, this is not what it's all about anyway. It's about this fight is important because it gives people a chance to enjoy the freedoms that we've enjoyed, to be able to practice their faith freely. Uh, and, and a lot of people, I think, are lost in times of persecution because it, it just becomes overwhelming. And, and we stand with them as well. This is about bringing our brothers and sisters along. It's about you know, telling people that there is hope. It's about, uh, you know, recognizing that this is something that we knew was coming. It's not a surprise. Jesus talked about it all the time, and we should be ready for it. Uh, we're talking again with uh, Dr. T uh, Thomas Williams, his new book, uh, which is out just in a few weeks, The Coming Christian Persecution. Um, another part of this, I made a note in the margin here. Um, did you, you've been, and we were joking about it, but you've been an observer and a participant in um, you know, Catholic Church um, uh, ongoing, you know, uh, goings on, but also American politics. I mean, for now, I, I think we could say like 30 plus years as an adult, even. Right? I mean, you know, I've been alive longer. It seems like it's really moved quickly to this persecution, hasn't it? I mean, it's almost like in the last 10 to 12 years, it just accelerated up where what you thought would be um, something that might be in the future and might still come, you know, the old uh, Cardinal George uh, uh, um, kind of uh, famous um, phrase, you know, where he said he would end up, I don't, uh, you'll remind me, how did he say he said he'd die, he'd end up, he would die in his bed and his uh, successor would die in prison or uh, however it was, but um, it feels like it's accelerated. And when you describe in the book, um, what's, what's happening and how it's happening, are you surprised at the speed of it? 
I, I'm really surprised, I have to say. Uh, I, and this is especially in the West, in the, if we will, post-Christian West, because, you know, the persecution of Christians in other countries, in atheistic, communistic countries, in countries of, of, of Muslim domination, where that there are specific, you know, very radical Muslim trends. These are things that we are used to in a way, and we, in a way, expect it. But what we don't expect is in Christendom, in countries that were founded on Christian principles by Christian men and women uh, looking specifically for religious freedom. I mean, it's so ironic to me that pilgrims came over to the United States because they were persecuted. They came because they were basically pushed out and were not allowed to practice their, their beliefs. And they came to America to set it up as a haven for religious people to be able to practice their faith and, and look where we are today. So yeah, it, it does. It surprises me. It, it scares me. Uh, because it's come so quickly. I, I remember just, you know, a couple of years ago watching my friend Amy Barrett getting grilled uh, because she was a serious practicing Catholic and, and almost didn't make it to the U.S. Uh, district court. That was, you know, because, you know, Diane Feinstein and Dick Durbin and, you know, they were just hazing her because of her faith and mm -hmm. because she took it so seriously. You know, the funny thing is that, I mean, there's a, there's a kind of Christian that is fine, that the world accepts and there's never going to be persecuted. And it's so tempting to be that kind of Christian. And there's a kind of Christian that you're always going to be persecuted because you are a sign of contradiction. And, and I think that it's kind of like in the old Roman Empire, the ones who would burn the incest to the emperor and the ones who wouldn't. Yeah, and today right. there are a lot of and, and the ones who become the most fierce and vehement persecutors are often those very false brethren, as St. Paul says, who have burned the incense, the ones who have gone over, if you will, to the other side. That's why somebody like Dick Durbin, who says he's a Catholic, was able to be so harsh with somebody like Amy Coney Barrett. Uh, this is yeah. the world we're living in. Yeah, it's um, Dr. Thomas Williams, our guest again. He's the Breitbart uh, Rome Bureau Chief. He's uh, author of many books, uh, teaches theology in uh, university in Rome. And his new book is The Coming Christian Persecution, just in a few weeks from now, uh, available everywhere you buy books. Um, I, let me get, let me give you that quote because I don't want to pretend I quoted a Cardinal George. Uh, I, Cardinal uh, George, late Cardinal uh, George said, I expect to die in bed. My successor will die in prison and his successor will die a martyr in the public square. His successor will pick up the shards of a ruined society and slowly help rebuild civilization. The, the, the cool thing about that and your book is it's a hard message. But Cardinal George was never a bitter dude. I mean, he was never a hard, bitter guy. You're not either, but your book isn't either. It's like, hey, these are going to be the problems we're seeing. These are going to be the things we're facing. But you just put your finger on something that I think a lot, again, a lot of faithful shake their head on. How is it that the, the so-called self-proclaiming uh, religious, whether they're Catholics, you know, Pelosi says she's Catholic or so-and-so says he's a great Christian. And yet they are not only, not only the ones that hold positions that are so scandalous, but they're so, um, so unpleasant and nasty to other people. And somehow it's not, you know, called upon. Uh, they're not called upon. And, you know, Eric Metaxas, who I know you know well, has a book, a letter to the American church, mostly aimed at the, at the Protestant church, of course, but it's been very popular selling a lot of copies of the book because he says, basically, you aren't leading. The churches aren't leading. That feels like the churches aren't leading, uh, Dr. Williams. I mean, period. And people are, uh, at a loss because of it. Well, you're absolutely correct. And, uh, and I, you know, you and I, I believe are both Catholics and right. we see our own church 
in many parts of the world and, and even out of the Vatican. I think there's not a, a lot of great leadership there really telling us where we have to be, getting us into battle formation and helping us to, to see the path clearly. Uh, in many times, the church sounds more like an echo chamber for the UN on other, you know, these, these very, uh, popular uh, slogans and very popular topics, but about the real core beliefs of Christianity, the hard teachings and, and, the, and the belief in salvation and what it takes, we're just not getting a lot of that. So, um, you know, it is, it is the, the time is ripe for a whole new generation of leaders. And I think both clerical and lay, I think pastors and, and people have to stand up and fill the void. What else are we going to do, Ed, right? I mean, because we can't, just wait. Sometimes it's a question of, well, if there's nobody else, I guess I'm the one who has to carry the torch. Yeah, it's uh, it is a fascinating time. I'm glad that you did this book uh, when you did in terms of the timing, the coming Christian persecution, why things are getting worse and what you can do about it. Of course, I will say, Dr. Thomas Williams, one of the great uh, lessons the late Phyllis Schlafly said was in her book, she would describe what was going on. And then at the end of the book, you got to say what to do. And I know you do that in your book. You say, here's what's happening. Here's where it's going. Here's what you need to do. So uh, it's really uh, helpful. And thank you for doing it and for being out there like you are. We appreciate it. And it's such a pleasure always. And thank you for the important work you do. Oh, you're very, you're nice to say thank you. Dr. Thomas Williams, again, he's with Breitbart. If you go to Breitbart.com, you'll see his writings regularly there, but he's also a prolific author. I think it's up to almost 20 books that he's written. So we'll put all that up on social media, and I'm sure we'll talk to him again, and we'll take a quick break. It's Ed Martin here on the Pro-America Report. We'll be back in a moment. This is the Phyllis Schlafly Report, presenting a daily conservative pro-family perspective since 1983 and continuing the legacy of Phyllis Schlafly. And now, from the archives of Phyllis Schlafly Eagles, here is Phyllis Schlafly. Dr. Paul Church spent 28 years as a urologist at Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center in Boston. He was trained at Cornell University and teaches part-time at Harvard Medical School. He makes trips to Mexico and Africa to provide free medical services. Unfortunately, the hospital chose to fire Dr. Church for one reason. He refuses to endorse the gay lifestyle. No patient has ever complained about any discrimination from Dr. Church. He said he believes medical institutions should treat all patients. The hospital administration fired Dr. Church simply because they did not like his personal beliefs. For years, the hospital has promoted this dangerous lifestyle through Gay Pride Week celebrations and LGBT achievement ceremonies. After receiving an invitation to one of these events, Dr. Church responded with an email explaining his views. He said, Behaviors common within the homosexual community are unhealthy and high risk for a host of serious medical consequences, including STDs, HIV and AIDS, and cancer, hepatitis, parasitic, intestinal infections, and psychiatric disorders. Life expectancy is significantly decreased as a result of HIV, complications from other health problems, and suicide. Dr. Church's view is based on his extensive experience as a urologist and on sound evidence from credible research studies. According to the Center for Disease Control, men who have sex with other men are 40 times more likely to be HIV positive than heterosexual men. 
Dr. Church was targeted simply because he was not in line with the hospital's politically correct agenda. He ought to be judged by his performance on the job, not his personal beliefs. This has been the Phyllis Schlafly Report from Phyllis Schlafly Eagles. The traditional family is the building block of our communities and country. That's why it's imperative to support strong marriages, respect fathers, and champion stay-at-home moms. At phyllisschlafly.com, we oppose the liberal attempt to redefine the family. To join us, visit phyllisschlafly.com. Thanks for listening, and join us again next time for the Phyllis Schlafly Report. Welcome back. Welcome back. Ed Martin here on the Pro-America Report. Hey, I went too long on those interviews, so I'm a little long. I only got about 50 seconds. So let me just say thank you, as always, uh, to the great Noah Dingley, our producer who does a great job, and uh, also Ryan Hyder, associate producer. The Those guys help me uh, keep this thing together. Thank you for listening. Don't forget, visit ProAmericaReport.com, ProAmericaReport.com, ProAmericaReport.com. Sign up there for the Daily Wink uh, and uh, also all the rest of uh, what we're up to. Uh, at phyllisschlafly.com. So we will be back uh, tomorrow. Thank you again for listening. It's Ed Martin here on the Pro-America Report. Talk to you tomorrow. This is the Pro-America Report on The Answer, San Diego. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.